at one of the most difficult passages of all the, in all the Bible. Some this morning, some of it's really badly written. I was obviously getting tired. <laughs> Did I write that? Oh my goodness! It's my phone. Carol. Now that you'll give us the help of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for us. And even these difficult sections, there is profit in them. And I pray you will help us to receive benefit and help from scripture today. Holy Spirit, be our teacher in this. Amen. So last time we worked through 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, where Paul sets out the agenda for the last day, including the dead in Christ will rise first. When the Lord Jesus comes to raise all the dead and be received by saints, but also to bring judgment upon the world. It's the last day, the day of the Lord. Uh, It's not before the last, last day, and after that day is the eternal day of the glorious kingdom of God. It's the end of the age, the end of the world. It's the coming of Christ. And I originally thought, well, usually put in my notes, this 2 Thessalonians 2 as well, but my goodness, it's a big thing to do. So, long set of notes available afterwards, shorter version from me now standing here. Now, said last week, we can't know the day or the time when Jesus is returning. Amen. Right? That's, that's what he told us. So everybody who makes a prediction is a fool. I'll go on record of saying that. Amen. If you predict the, re- the, the date and time of Jesus' return, you're, you're being stupid yes. and, and, and disobeying him. All right. Now here's the thing, there's a paradox here, yet there are some things that must happen before he returns. Now, you just have to juggle that. You have to hold on to both of them. We don't know the day of the hour, but there are some things that need to happen before he returns. And... Uh, I'm going to mention three this morning, um, and I'm not the only person who thinks about these three. A lot of the scholars do as well. The first one's bad news, and two of them are good news. So hold on to your seats before we go through the bad news. There's a good news to follow. Okay? For the bad news, we turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, really difficult passage. Let me just say this. that I mentioned some weeks ago this jigsaw puzzle analogy of people putting scriptures together to make them fit their plan. All right? And this passage... You really, whatever plan you've come up with, you're going you're gonna to take your scissors all over this one because it, it just really is difficult and awkward to anybody's last day's theory. But I'll give it my best effort. I don't have all the answers. You're welcome to ask me more questions, and I'll tell you I don't know when I don't know. Um, but I, I, I've been... Anyway, Paul has to assure the Thessalonians in a second letter, having written the first one about the day of the Lord, it's not, you know... It, it won't happen without you knowing the dead in Christ will rise, will be transformed, will be with the Lord, will come in with him as his arrival party, as he comes in to the world to judge the world. We're part of that process of his coming. His parousia is the Greek word. And yet, months later, probably only months later, there are still some people in Thessalonica telling them, it's all gone, it's all come and gone, guys. So he has to write again to them to say, the day of the Lord hasn't come. And he gives them a reason why. All right? So before the last day. Now concerning, second letter remember, backing it up. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, which we looked at last week. We ask you brothers not to be easily upset in mind or troubled either by a spirit or a, you know, what people claim is a spiritual revelation. You know, or by a message or by a letter as if from us. Maybe people are even faking letters from Paul about this. Alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, which means either he belongs to destruction or he's a destroyer. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this? Now, you'd like to go back and see the video of that, wouldn't you? But you can't. 
what, Paul sitting talking to them about these things. And you know what currently restrains him, this man of lawlessness, so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. That's the bit of good news there. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles and signs and wonders and with every unrighteous deception amongst those who are perishing, those who are lost, the unbelieving. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but enjoyed unrighteousness. I pointed out last time that Paul isn't inventing this stuff. He's drawing from the Olivet Discourse, which is the the thing that Jesus gave to the disciples when he told them the temple was going to be destroyed, the city was going to be overthrown, and they said, when when is all that going to happen? So Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, you've got what we call the Olivet Discourse, things about the last things. Now, some of those last things are past things to us. Jerusalem being overtaken and the temple being destroyed. They're past things, but there's still some last things in there that still apply. And uh, you to read that. So let me summarize these headlines from the Thessalonians. The day of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord Jesus, will not come unless and until, first of all, there's uh, the apostasy. Apostasy there means rebellion. The King James Version has falling away. That's too weak. It's, a, it's rebellion. It's rebellion. Comes first. And a man of lawlessness has his revealing. The Greek word there is apocalypsis. So Jesus is revealed in his coming, but before Jesus is revealed, there's a wicked person who's revealed. The mystery behind this, the secret behind this, is already at work. But something or someone, maybe both, currently restrains this from happening. But when the restraint is removed, this person will be revealed. He's a destroyer, a despot, and will exalt himself as divine, having more than human authority. He'll be empowered by Satan's working. And there'll be all kinds of false miracles and signs and wonders and every unrighteous deception amongst those who are perishing. And the Lord Jesus, when he appears, will destroy this person with the breath of his mouth, which is a thing coming from Old Testament prophecy. God doesn't have to even you know, fight. He just breathes on them and they, they're consumed by fire. Bring him to nothing. So more on these. First of all, rebellion. This means more than falling away. King James is not helpful there. Falling away comes from another Greek word which is weaker. This is a strong word. It's a deliberate and defiant attitude, an abandonment of faith and obedience. It's found in Acts 21, the same word. Those who abandon Moses, reject Moses. A similar word in Greek means to defect, to desert, to divorce. You don't, you don't kind of fall away from each other. You divorce, you know. It's an it's a action, a very firm action. So before the end comes, there will be a great rebellion against the truth. And I think we see it in that work. I've been saying to some people recently, we're finding the world is no longer agnostic, which means don't know. It's antagonistic against the gospel and the church. The last days started when Jesus came and certainly by the time he rose again. It's the reign of Jesus, the last days, from his first advent to his second advent. But if you read Matthew 13, and I've been so challenged this week discovering some of the things in Matthew 13, seven parables of the mysteries of the kingdom, what Jesus' kingdom looks like, and it's surprising because it's not the way that people expected it to look like. You must read those, Matthew 13, all seven parables, or make one story. Jesus' kingdom is not a completed kingdom. It's not all bright and shiny. It still has mixture in it. It grows, and yet evil grows as well at the same time. Evil will continue until the end of the age, until the last days. So in three different parables, one of them not in Matthew 13, 
the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds, aren't separated until the when? The end of the age. The good fish and the bad fish aren't separated until when? The end of the age. What's the other one? Sheep and goats. Yeah? The, se- the sheep and the goats aren't separated until the end of the age. So, Jesus' kingdom advances, but evil is still at work. Put it this way, that both holiness and wickedness will both grow to maturity to the end of this age. You're reaching now to go and read Matthew Matthew 13, I hope, anyway. But there will be a time when not only the world rebels against Christ, but some of the official church does too, and I think we're getting close to that. And then there's this man of lawlessness. That day can't come until the man of lawlessness has revealed the son of destruction. There is a person who will come to power, to prominence and power, to authority, to government, before the Lord returns. And I don't think this is a Middle Eastern issue. I think this is a global issue. He is firstly a deceiver and then a destroyer. Such is the nature of wolves in the language of Scripture, in the way that Jesus describes wolves, they come in, first of all, dressed in sheep's clothing and go, bah. And then the sheep's clothing gets shredded off and they're all teeth and fangs, devouring and destroying. And this man, like the Roman emperors, will claim absolute obedience and even what amounts to worship. And by the way, I'll talk about Nero in a minute. Nero wasn't the only Roman emperor who had statues put up around the empire that said, Nero, emperor, great God and saviour. Did you hear that? They claim was that they were king of kings and lord of lords. When the New Testament writers use those phrases, they know exactly what they're saying. Not him, him. That's a false God. That's a false saviour. He's not the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Jesus is. And that's why they went, they were burned on poles and thrown to lions because they would not confess that a Roman emperor was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and a great God and saviour. Paul says that he will sit in God's sanctuary and People say, oh, that means the temple in Jerusalem. Well, I really don't think so, because Paul never, ever uses that language of the temple in Jerusalem. He uses the language of house and sanctuary and temple always about the individual Christian and the church. So it seems to me this man of lawlessness takes something over something of the apparent authority of what is perhaps then a compromised church. So you're talking about the beast. Well, not really. People assume that the man of sin is the same as the beast of Revelation. Anybody heard that phrase, the beast of Revelation? I've got news for you. There isn't one beast. There's a whole series of them. There's a series of them. Because it's drawn from Daniel where there's a series of beasts. Daniel prophesied about four empires that would come. It was the Babylonians and then the Medes and Persians and then the Macedonian Greeks and then the Romans. And in the as that, those empires went through, in the times of those empires, first of all, in the time of the Greek Empire, a, a great persecutor came against Jerusalem, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. That's an interesting name, isn't it? And he defiled the temple in 167 BC. But then in the time of the Romans was when Jesus came, the prince, okay? And, uh, but in the time of the Romans as well is when, guess what happened? Jerusalem got destroyed again, and the temple was burned down again. So, the beast in Daniel and the beast in Revelation is not a picture of a person, it's a picture of an empire, a government, a nation. A rampaging, devouring nation. Let me be honest here, I will say this publicly, the British Empire in its time was such a kind of beast. Ripping off the rest of the world for its own ends. I know I sound like a communist, but I'm just reflecting on the morality of these things. But I'm not saying the British Empire is in the Bible, by the way, right? I'm just saying. All through history, we've had this kind of thing going on. 
governments, empires, nations who begin to control the world. Right now, there are three big players, aren't there? America, Russia, China. To speak of the beast of Revelation is inaccurate. Actually, the beasts have rulers, and the rulers in this prophetic language are pictured as being heads or horns. Okay? So there's a little horn that does, you know, it's not the whole beast, it's a little horn on the beast that does whatever. So, you know, just, just, just put that one down, it's not the beast of Revelation. There are parallels between what's said about the man of, man of lawlessness and the beasts in Revelation. There are parallels, but that's because this is a pattern that repeats throughout history. It happened during the Old Testament times. It happened with the Roman emperors. It's happened since then with other empires, French Empire, British Empire. You know, it happens. Nations get above themselves and begin to exert an, an influence and draw others into their power and under their government. Daniel's prophecies were picked up by the Lord Jesus, by Paul, by John, and recycled and reapplied. What was true for the Jewish nation back then, bear in mind, four or five hundred years before Jesus came, is now being applied in the time of Jesus and the apostles and pointing forward to the end of time as well. Prophecy and history have repeating patterns until the end comes. Okay, so, no, I don't really mean the beast. Oh, you mean the Antichrist then? Oh, that's an interesting one too. I believe there's a difference between this man of sin and the Antichrist. While many scholars call this person in 2002 the Antichrist, because uh, he deceives and leads a great rebellion before the Lord returns, the word Antichrist does not appear in the Gospels or in the words of Jesus, or in the letters of Paul, Peter, James, or Jude, nor in Revelation, which John wrote before he wrote his letters. It only appears in the letters of John, where John says, you've heard that there's an Antichrist coming. So he's picking up on something that was already current. And I believe he wrote the letters long after uh, AD 70 and the death of Nero as well. Like AD 80s, AD 90s. And we know that there was, you know, in in the Jewish world at that time, you know, Jerusalem's gone and the nationhood is gone. There were whole kinds of theories about messiahs coming in. And so they, they were expecting there would be a false messiah before the real messiah. That was what the Jewish kind of language was about. So John writes and says, you've heard about this Antichrist. That's the first time it, the word appears in the Bible. Do you know what he replies to that? Even now there are many Antichrists. And he goes on to talk about false teachers and prophets. He says the spirit of Antichrist is at work and there are already many Antichrists. In other words, there's lots of people leading you away from Jesus. And he pictures it not as persecution against the church, but trouble within the church. The poison of false pastors, false preachers, false prophets. That's how John interprets Antichrist. And yet, most Bible scholars just shove these two things together and say, oh, that's the Antichrist thing. Well, I know everybody kind of assumes that, but I think there's a disconnection there. Okay. Let me move on. I might get through this quicker than I was thinking. The church, let me just finish that point there. You see, there are two kinds of trouble for the church, there have been since Jesus went back to heaven. Trouble from outside, anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-gospel forces oppress the saints of God. You do not want today to be living in certain Islamic nations and certainly not in North Korea. But Christians are living there under tremendous pressure and opposition. It keeps happening. And the church has never been without falsehood. False teachers, preachers, leaders. Jesus said we would be dealing with them. Paul wrote about them. It was current. John writes about them. It was happening. And if you, like I've said before now, if you think that everything that's out there that's got Christian attached to it, you know, labeled, whether it's a book or a TV program or whatever, it's all good. It isn't all good. There is falsehood at work. Some of it's good, 
Some of it is very much not good. We need to be discerning about these things. Because false teaching is very real, very live, and it doesn't come with a sticker on its chest, you know, and tells you at the door that, you know, I'm I'm a false teacher, right? It's far closer to home than that very often. Let's move on. That's what the Bible calls Antichrist, by the way. That's the Bible interprets that word in that way. So, there's a restrainer. The man of lawlessness, this wicked, deceiving, seducing, and then destroying, devouring person, is restrained by something, says Paul. Don't you remember when I was with you, I told you about this. You know what currently restrains him, and then he talks about who restrains him. So what is the restrainer? Some say the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I talked last week about I'm not a rapture believer. Right? I don't know if I've convinced anybody or if you still think that. But anyway, I'm not going to fall out with you about it. But that's, that's my position on it. And some say, oh, when the Holy Spirit's taken away. Well, if the Holy Spirit was taken away, my goodness, the world's going to be in a huge mess very quickly. Because God doesn't just save us through faith in Jesus, believers. By his common grace, he's restraining things all the time. Yeah? So, I don't think it is the Holy Spirit. I think the clue is this, the man of lawlessness. Do you know what restrains tyrants, dictators, despots from proclaiming themselves president for life? Law. Do you know what governments like China and Russia do not respect at all? Law. Law and order. Law prevents evil breaking out. Law sends people who do bad things to prison. Law holds to account people who have governmental authority. So they can be thrown out, impeached in America, recalled if you're a bad MP. You know, you've just been found guilty in a court of law. So, you know, MPs aren't, don't get dismissed as MPs just because they've been charged by an offence. But now there's a process where you can throw them out. The, the population, their, 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 their citizens throw them out. Recall them. We're held to account by law. That is God's way. God designed law to hold us to account and to keep things in check, to keep things in order. Law does not prevent bad behaviour, but it warns that there's a punishment for bad behaviour. And it's the fear of punishment, of condemnation, that should prevent people from doing this. A tyrant can only gain full power when the rule of law is taken away. And that law is often represented by a king or a governor or somebody. Therefore, you can talk about this restrainer as being both it and he. The mystery of lawlessness is at work, but it's released and personified when law and order are taken away. Let me give you some cases in history. Paul's writing to Christians here, and I don't think he's writing about something that's going to happen in, across the Mediterranean in the, Middle, in the Middle East, in Jerusalem. I think it's something that's going to affect them. So the first candidate, and one that I thought was the complete answer, but now I think he isn't the complete answer. But for their time, this is what they thought. I'm sure this is what they felt. The people who first read this letter from Paul would, within a decade or so, experience the fierce persecution of Nero. He took to himself all the powers of government, dismissed the authorities, claimed deity, and he was the first great persecutor of the church. They would have very understandably interpreted Paul's words and the revelation of John as speaking to them, them about those events. It was under Nero that the war against the Jews was begun, which was then completed by um, Vespasian, who then became emperor, and his son Titus, who destroyed Jerusalem. And it was under Nero that the first great persecution of Christians took place. And you can read about that. I'm not going to give you all the detail now. But the time came and went. And there was a time when the relative peace returned and the Christians had to figure out what was all that. We thought that was it. We thought that was, the, that was it. Jesus was coming any minute, man. And we had to pick up again and regroup and rethink. I'll just give you a few from history of people what people have thought about this man of lawlessness. By the time of the Reformation, and even before the Reformation, some of the pre-Protestants, we call them, 
100 years or more before that things were happening. They saw the papacy, the Bishop of Rome, as being this man of lawlessness because he controlled everything politically and geographically. And, you know, he was the king of kings and lord of lords because no king ruled without his authority. And uh, so when they read here in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he is God. You know, people like Luther, I mean, Luther, like, his language is very intemperate at times when he's talking about the Pope. My goodness, he's rude. But they thought that because it was a reason to think that. They were in a fierce battle against powerful enemies. Um, the King James Bible, if you've still got one, has a letter to King James at the beginning. Hidden in that letter is a little, little, little comment there about, you know, that James is resisting the evil one, the wicked one. It's about, we, this is a Protestant Bible. And so we, you know, we, to the Pope kind of thing. That's there. The Westminster Confession of Faith in 1646, which didn't become the official document of the Church of England, but to this day is still a founding document of the Church of Scotland, names the Pope as the Antichrist. It's in there. Other confessions and statements from the time of the Reformation do the same. And the papacy held power for hundreds of years. Do you know who defeated the Pope? Napoleon. Napoleon invaded Rome and took away the Pope's political authority and gave him a little piece of land which to this day is called the Vatican. You can sit there. You can't go anywhere else. Napoleon did that. So guess what? Christians around Europe then said, Oh, Napoleon, he's the man of sin. Because he was invading everywhere. He was like this beast rampaging around Europe and... Of course, the good old British went and saw to him, you know, Waterloo and all that. But they, they, they had good reason to think, this man's going to take over the world. Yeah? Man of lawlessness. Let's think about more recent times. In the early 1900s, the, Russia saw the collapse of the Tsar's authority which led to open lawlessness and to the communist takeover there. What was born in lawlessness continued as such. Lenin and then Stalin particularly ruled as dictators and tyrants, though officially, of course, in the name of the people. The Soviet Communist Party and its leaders persecuted the church during the time of the USSR. And communism in other nations, including China, has been beastly, to the church. Mao Zedong was a persecutor of the church. The Kim dynasty of rulers in North Korea have been persecutors of the church. Let's step on a bit from the Russian Revolution, back a bit from Kim, Kim Jong-un. When Germany lost the First World War, a German republic was formed. It was called the Weimar Republic. And it was so demoralized and morally corrupted that it became known across Europe for its decadence and hyperinflation and political extremism. I mean, far right, far left, fighting on the streets for control of the republic. Out of that filthy pond arose, guess who? Adolf Hitler. And the concentration camps of the Nazi Reich contained Jews, political dissidents, homosexuals, but also many Christian believers too. Hitler would destroy what he could not control. He controlled many of the churches in Germany and the rest who would not submit, he crushed. I have at least one book on my shelves at home written in the 1930s saying that Mussolini was the man of sin. They were a bit short-sighted. It was more likely Hitler fitted the bill, but they, they were ahead of the game. But in any case, if they'd written Hitler, they'd be wrong because... He was something of that type. Part of a repeating process. Part of a repeating process in history of these kinds of nations and these kinds of rulers gaining power. Terrible. Tyrannical power. The rise of both communism and fascism in the first half of the 20th century Depended, both of them depended upon the breakdown of law and order. When the restrainer was taken away, all hell broke out, as we say. It's not it's a silly expression. Hell doesn't break out of anywhere, but anyway. 
evil populist political movements take hold when there is lawlessness about. We do well to review that history and not make the same mistake. More very recently, when the Soviet Union collapsed in the 1990s, criminals were let loose on the Russian economy and society and Putin came to power. Now, if you think we've got Putin in Russia, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, who's their best pal? No, let's not even say that. Let's not even go there. Scary. I, I get a bit scared when I think about these things. Revelation points out a series of beasts and also a pro- false prophet who mislead and then attack the saints. A beast in Revelation is anti-Christian authority or authorities. A false prophet in Revelation is false religion and deception. Perhaps a corrupted Christianity. There may yet be more beastly rulers still to come, but I have to accept, and this is where I've changed my mind, Colin, (laughs) because we were discussing this a few weeks ago. I think that this scripture in 2 Thessalonians will yet be fulfilled there will be a final such lawless person. And he will be around when Jesus appears and Jesus will deal with him. But we've had the image before. We've had types before, from Nero through to the papacy. To, you know, and Christians in those times, of course they thought this was it. But the, the it will come and it will fulfill all of what's said there. See, Nero was not destroyed by Jesus. Hitler wasn't destroyed by Jesus. The Allies did it. Well, he took his own life, but never mind. But this one, this last one, will be destroyed not by men, but by Christ. That is still yet to come. And it starts with lawlessness. Jesus will destroy the man of lawlessness, the final beast, in Revelation, the false prophet in Revelation, and his parousia, consigning them to fiery judgment along with the devil. But until the end comes, these evil forces are at work. And every now and again, up pops an example. Another one here, another one there. There's also a final deception. Did you notice that? There's a delusion. Because people do not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. God sends them a strong delusion. Wow, it just happens, man. I mean, how did that go? No, God sends a strong delusion. So they will believe what is false, so that all will be condemned. You go back to Pharaoh, and from Pharaoh onwards, others as well in Scripture. When people harden their hearts against the Lord and his word, they reject, abandon him. That's apostasy. They rebel against him. When you do that, there's a point at which God says, confirmed, agreed, done. And you are sealed into that rebellion. He hardens your heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. Then it says God hardened his heart. You're not going to change your mind now. You're confirmed in your choice. So what will this deception and delusion be? Wouldn't we like to know? So we can put it in the back of our Bible and say, watch out for this one. When that one happens, wow, we, we don't have it. We haven't got that. What is this great final delusion? And, and, and where did the signs and the wonders and the false miracles come in as well? We don't know. Can we see the video, please, of Paul explaining these things? We weren't there. So here's the thing. We don't know what the delusion will be. So what, how, how can we deal with that? We need to arm ourselves with the truth. We need to be so familiar with the words of Scripture and the words of truth that when something comes up which isn't like this, it doesn't fit with this, we just have to... My old friend, American guy, used to say, I smell smoke. Yeah? There's something burning here. There's something from somewhere else at work. You know, or he could have said, I smell sulfur. You know, this is coming from somewhere else. This is not coming from the Lord. When you know the real thing, the counterfeit is like, mm, that's, not, that's not it. 
And that's all you need to do to practice discernment sometimes. Just go, mm-mm. Don't smell good, don't taste good, don't sound good. I'm not having it. We are to be watchful. We're not to be deceived by what the world believes. We're not to drink down what poisons their hearts and minds. Jesus made this comment in the Olivet Discourse. False messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You remember Jesus said it. False messiahs, false prophets, performing great signs and wonders. If you believe the signs and wonders, you can be led down the path. The lead astray, if possible, even the elect. We need to keep our minds tuned up with truth. It's the best defense against error. But there will be a final rebellion. There will be a final rebellion. That's the message of Revelation. In seven visions, it tells us over again that the Lord who came to earth and defeated the devil in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, will come again at the end of the age And the final outcome of his return will be the complete victory of him and therefore us too over all our enemies. It's good news, isn't it? Jesus is coming. The end is coming. The end of all evil. Revelation 19 ends with a final battle and with the beast and the false prophet being thrown into the lake of fire. But then Revelation 20, because it's a series of visions which are not chronological, they're they're visions that tell you the same story from a different angle, again and again, seven times. Revelation 20 starts again with this. Let me read the passage to you, shall I? Revelation 20. Then I saw, and this is, then I saw is a new vision. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Messenger, angel is messenger. I don't think I'm pushing it to say that could refer to Jesus. With the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand, he seizes the the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Okay, we got it. And bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations. Notice that this binding is so that he can't deceive the nations. There's a deception. He He can't get to work. He can't make it happen. That's the binding there, until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Oh, my. So this, is, this isn't it then. No, this isn't it. This is temporary. Then I saw thrones, people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. That's one of the beasts, yeah. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Elsewhere, Jesus talked about the first resurrection as being, being born again. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power of them because they're already born of God. And they will be priests of God and of Messiah and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7. However you understand the thousand years, and I'm not going to fall out with anybody, if you still believe there's a thousand year reign of Jesus coming, it's all right. But notice this, however you understand that thousand years, and I understand it as being the period from the first coming of Jesus to his second coming, it finishes with the rebellion. Revelation 20 verse 7. When the thousand years completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That is not a reference to geography. People say, oh, that's the Russians. No, no, no. Gog and Magog is a biblical expression that simply means prince and people. The prince and the people of the prince. And the man of sin, it seems to me, is this Gog, this prince mentioned here. To gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Oh, my goodness. Oh, you thought, you thought there's only going to be a few of them in this rebellion. No, it's a big rebellion. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. I don't think that's literally Jerusalem. I think that's us, the church. Then fire came down from heaven. That's the breath of his mouth. And consumed them. The devil that deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the prophet, false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever. And then he goes on, I saw the great white throne. This is now judgment starting to happen. Saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and so on. 
And then chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. When some people express these, these, these kind ideas of a millennial reign, Jesus reigning personally, physically from Jerusalem over a somewhat renewed earth, I just feel like I need to remind them about, well, okay, if you say so, but look at this. It ends with Satan being released again to deceive and a great rebellion coming against the Lord and his people. A great army of rebels. That is how, according to Thessalonians, according to Revelation, according, I believe, to the teaching of Jesus, that's something that will happen before the world ends, before the end of the age. This gospel age will end in a great rebellion against the Lord and us, his people, before the Lord returns. And don't tell me the church won't go through that great trouble. We've always done so in the past. And people today are going through such trouble. I think it's sheer arrogance to say the last generation of Christians are going to be beamed up out of here like Star Trek do, you know. And so we don't get to face any trouble. My brothers and sisters, people are dying for Christ now. Yeah? We're just arrogant because we're Westerners and think, not me, not me. They went around encouraging everyone in all the churches in Acts 14, he says, telling them that by through much trouble we must inherit the kingdom of God. But we don't think so. We think we're going to get away without it. Anyway, that's the bad news. Oh, it took some time, I know. Sorry. Good news number one. Three things must happen before Jesus returns. I haven't even caught up with that myself, have I? Good news number one. There is a harvest to Christ in faith, in obedience, from the Gentile nations. The world cannot come to its end until the gospel has been preached to every people group on earth. Why? Because Jesus said so. This good news of the kingdom must be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations and that's people groups and then the end will come. Now, there's some hints in the New Testament that they thought they'd done done that but they'd only done that within the Greek-speaking world of the Roman Empire. We know how big the world is now, don't we? We know, because we've got stats on it, where there are people groups who do not yet have a gospel witness, there's no church planted there, and they have no scriptures yet in their own language. So we've still got a job to do, haven't we? In the 1600s, which was a bit after the Reformation, the church began to wake up to this, and suddenly there came a missionary movement in 1600 onwards, right through the 1600s, 1800s, 1900s, thousands of people firstly from Europe and then from America, went all over the world. Why? Because they knew we had this commission. They also knew that Jesus, having declared it there, commissions it here. Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, not the Roman emperor, him. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, every people group, every language baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to do everything I've commanded you. Observe doesn't mean, oh yeah, I see that. At least do it. And remember, I am with you always. To the when? To when? The end of the age. This is going to happen to the end of the age. Because the world has to hear the gospel so the end can come. It can't happen until this happens. So that's the second thing that must happen before the Lord Jesus returns. All nations. There's a Bible college not far from here. Where? Called All Nations. I believe it was originally set up to train missionaries. When the job of reaching at least some people in all the tribes of the world is done, and I don't think anyone will know for sure, like you can count it down. Oh, two to go. I don't think we're, I don't think anybody's going to keep tabs of it. Right. Then the end can come. Good news number two is this: there will be a harvest of Jewish people of Israel to faith in Messiah before the last day. That's mentioned in a number. Giving you in the notes which you haven't got yet, but you know Jesus talked about it. The apostles talked about it. The recovery of 
Israel, the Jewish people, to a land and to nationhood was good news for them? Of course it was. Was there a blessing? Sure, God's blessing upon them. Did it fulfill Old Testament promise? Perhaps it did. But you know what? Jesus said to Jewish people in his time, living you know, in their land, albeit under the rule of Romans, if you don't believe that I am he, that I am, you'll die in your sins. So the, the New Testament doesn't really talk about land and nationhood. It talks about salvation in Jesus. And here in Romans 9 through 11, the greater hope of Israel is spelled out in big terms. It's a big passage of scripture, chapter 9 right to the end of chapter 11. And Paul hammers on through, giving his supporting arguments why he is counting on this. There will be a great time of harvest of Jewish people to faith in Jesus before the end comes. Let me just give you these verses at the, the, the finale of this argument, just about. Okay? Three chapters full of this stuff. I do not want you to be conceited, brothers. He's writing to Roman, Roman Christians. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. When the Bible uses the word mystery, we're, all, we're about to ex- have something explained to us. It's never, you can't know this, it's a mystery. It's, no, it's always being explained to us when it says mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. The Jews are not coming, very few are coming to faith. Until when? Until the full number of the Gentiles, the harvest has been pretty much gathered from the rest of the world. And in this way, all Israel would be saved. I think Paul's using Israel in a different sense there, because that's all Israel who are believing people in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles. And you've got to look at Galatians and Ephesians to see how Paul argues that through. And then he quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah. As it is written, the liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The old covenant of Jehovah promised Israel nationhood and a land, but not without conditions. It wasn't unconditional. But his new and better covenant with them through Jesus Messiah is to what? To take away their sins. Being recovered to a land and a nationhood, great, but this one really matters. This, this is eternal. Salvation in Jesus. So Romans 11, 25, 27 is a promise of just that. When the full number of the Gentiles has come in, the hardening of Israel will be removed and all Israel, Jews and Gentiles together in Messiah, will be saved. And if you haven't got time, but if you went back to that same chapter, Romans 11, 12 to 15, it says there that when the full number of the Jewish people are reconciled to God through Jesus Messiah, their acceptance back will mean Life from the dead. In other words, it's resurrection day coming. So this is one of the last things to happen so that Jesus will return. The resurrection to faith in Messiah. Of, I'm not going to say every Jewish person, many Jewish people. And even as I'm saying this, I know I'm going to get into trouble for saying it. The resurrection to life and faith of many Jewish people tips over into the resurrection of the dead by Jesus Christ. So if you want to be, as the King James Version says in one place, looking, looking for and hastening towards the day of God, running towards the day of God, two things you can do. Pray for the gospel to reach every part of the world population and pray that the Lord Jesus will bring many Jewish people to himself in saving grace and mercy. Don't pray for the man of lawlessness. There's nothing... <laughs> You can pray it doesn't appear in your lifetime if you like, but I don't think you can control that. Pray that if it happens in your lifetime, you'll endure in faith and obedience and not compromise with evil. Before Jesus returns, the gospel will reach across the globe to every people group and bring in a great harvest of Gentile people to faith and obedience. Before the world ends, the Jewish people will turn in great numbers to faith in Jesus Messiah. And they don't have to be in the Middle East to do that. All right? Wherever Jewish people are found, New York, North London, it's going to happen. But there will be a time of great political upheaval and great trouble before Jesus returns. And a final despot and leader of anti-Christian forces will lead the last rebellion against the Lord and his church. 
both holiness and wickedness will come to full maturity and then the end will come. The weeds will be taken away. The bad fish will be taken away. The goats will be sent away. And God's children will be gathered in to God's household and kingdom. And to finish off, 2 Thessalonians 2 this morning. But we must always thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you. I've missed verse out. There you go, I missed it up. He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He called you so that you may inherit glory. Glory. I mean, you know, this is not riches. It's like much, much better than riches, man. This is glory. Therefore, brothers, stand firm. I need this one. Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions, which means teachings you were taught, either by a message or by a letter. We looked at it last time. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Having been chosen by God, he called us through the gospel. He's now working in us through faith and obedience, through sanctification, through the work of the Spirit. God is changing us, improving us, amending us, growing us, bringing us to maturity of character, faith, obedience, so that we will be ready. We will be fruitful. We will be well-seasoned, well-produced for when we see the Lord. So... To summarize some of the instructions of the Bible to us about these things, believe the truth, the teaching of Jesus and of the New Testament. Live in the Spirit. Stand firm on truth. Don't collapse. Don't compromise. Don't conform with this unbelieving world. Don't love what they love and treasure what they treasure. Hold on to what really matters, love, faith, obedience to the Lord Jesus and the means of his grace to you. Prayer, scripture, the company of fellow believers. We are destined for glory in the world to come, so we can only live at odds with the world now. And I intend to pick up on this in September with a new series, Drawing on Daniel, working title, Living for God in a Godless World. For the next few weeks, Dable Campbell sees us next Sunday, then Joel will be preaching, and Jack will be preaching, and Colin will be preaching. We're not going away for weeks and weeks and weeks, Caroline, but we are going away for two weeks in the middle of it. When I come back, I'll finish... Thessalonians, including some more practical application, including instructions about prophecy, and about prayer, and about thanksgiving. We'll look at those together. Let me just finish here now. Are you a child of God? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of Christ Jesus? What's the foundation of your life, and what is the direction of your life? How are you living? I'm not talking about income. What's the, your way of life? Are you living just for what's now, for this world, or for then, for the world to come? We're destined for glory. Glory. See, I'm asking the questions, but you can measure it and see it in the choices we make every day. How we conduct ourselves. How we spend our time and our money. What we set as priorities. What we choose to do and what we allow to be left undone. I just want to remind you this morning... You do know it is possible, don't you, to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Jesus said so. You can have it all and lose it all. Lose what really matters, what is eternal. I've been thrown back into studying the last things this past month or two, and I have to tell you, it's been hard work, it's been confusing. I've... Uh, I spent some time literally kind of shaking my head. But it's left me with this, a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency. The truths that I've had to go back through and the things that are happening in the world today leave, leave me with a sense of urgency. So that I'm, I'm saying, even as I'm studying these things, that the, the, the last but one phrase of Revelation 
If you go to the back of the Bible, last page, the, the next to last sentence is this, even so come Lord Jesus. But I had plans to go on holiday next week. Even so, it's not next week's week off. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I, I, I'm going to send my kid to university. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Sense of urgency. This will all go. I said a few weeks ago, even this building will go up in flames in the conflagration of God cleansing his planet and creating a new heaven and a new earth. I need to live for what is eternal, for what really lasts, lasts what really matters. And so whatever's around me, whatever is here, relationships, possessions, whatever, even so, come, Lord Jesus. May that be a cry that comes from your heart as you continue to think these things through. I don't want to scare you in any way. The good news is there's a harvest coming from the Gentile nations and from the Jewish people and Jesus is coming to a completed church. Completed both in size and numbers but also in quality. I believe his church, his bride, will be ready for him. She'll be ready for him. But we may endure some very difficult times before we see him. And if you think, oh, that can't happen. Oh, really? It's happened in history. It's happening now in parts of the world. And who knows, maybe that's what Thessalonians are telling us. It's, one day it's going to happen like everywhere at once. And there'll be a final such godless, lawless leader who will lead the final rebellion. That's become my conviction on this subject. But there are good times ahead still, for there will be a harvest. There will be increase. And the advance of Jesus' kingdom cannot be stopped. We talked about the powers of hell earlier. The devil can't stop Jesus producing what he came for. A perfect bride to be with him forever. That will happen. Because the Lord of hosts is making it happen. And when it comes time to deal with the devil and the final uh, rebels and whatever else, you know, all Jesus does is breathe on them and they're consumed in fiery judgment. It's not, it's not even a battle. Not, is that a battle? Just breathes on them and they're judged. Let's pray together, shall we? Okay. Tough scripture. Hard to work through. Lord Jesus, we submit our hearts to you. There have been many, not just the Roman emperors, but many since who, whether they've said it publicly, in their hearts they've maneuvered, they've plotted to become world-dominating powers. They've treasured the thought that they were the great hero, that they would liberate people, in fact, they were enslaving them, that they would be as God. They learned it, of course, from their master, Satan. He started the whole idea, I will be like God. But Lord Jesus, we acknowledge again today that you alone are God. I pray that we may hold the truths of the gospel firmer and firmer and firmer while the world around us clearly is becoming more anti-Christian. Help us not to fight fire with fire, we leave the fire to you. And to conduct ourselves with peace and sincerity and truthfulness, to live godly lives for the honour of your name, no matter what our detractors say against us. Cause us to be light and salt and that our walk and our works and our word are faithful witnesses to you. And we believe, Lord Jesus, that you are coming again and that there will be a wrapping up of all things with a final outcome which is described really in this one incredible word, glory. We inherit glory with our Father.
Oh, Jesus. So thank you that you, Lord God, that you, you chose us. It came a point in our lives when you intervened and called us. We, we knew you were speaking to us. And you gave us grace. And you continued to shape us by your grace and through the work of the Spirit, making us ready to inherit your kingdom. Thank you that salvation begun will be completed. He who has begun a good thing in us will complete it until the day of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.